Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are working so hard to make coastal Mississippi such an amazing place to live, work, and play. You hear me say that every single day, and... There's, I think, more meaning in this thought about the leadership in coastal Mississippi and what they're doing these days to build a better community, what they're doing these days to work together so that these collection of communities that make up coastal Mississippi can be as strong as they possibly can be. That way the region is strong, and this region is an economic engine for the rest of the state. But I think one of the reasons why, when I say that, that it means more to us is because we had uh, we had um, an apocalyptic situation here in coastal Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina, much in the way the people of Florida having to deal with Hurricane Ian. Apocalyptic. I mean, it's, it's no other way to describe it. And I wrote a piece about it. You can go you can go look at it if you want to. It's an open letter to our friends in Florida from a Katrina survivor to an Ian survivor. Um, so what I want to do today is I want to share with you one piece of this, and then I'm going to turn to my friend Ashley Edwards, who's the CEO of the Business Council, and also worked very, very closely with Haley Barber's uh, team after Hurricane Katrina, and we'll remind you what that role was. And we're going to go into a bit of a conversation about, wonder what this, what the state of Florida is thinking about these days. What are the set of steps that they're going to be, that they're probably going through in this moment? And where's where's the opportunity for maybe some innovation to occur? And um, there's a lot we don't know, but we'll learn from this conversation the kind of things that happened here in Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina, and we'll speculate on sort of what what we think might be happening uh, in Florida. It is it is very 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 detailed and and uh, complicated. That is for sure. Um, here's here's the segment I want to share with you, and I think this is going to ring true for people who were here after Hurricane Katrina. And, uh, you know, what it made you feel like and what we learned about ourselves. And here it is. Hurricane Ian brought many challenges. The same as as Katrina did as well. Personal, economic, social, historic, cultural, and many others. On every dimension, the people of Florida are challenged now. You, your family, and your communities have many needs now. Financial, spiritual, physical, and psychological. And I think all all four of those, all those dimensions are being challenged at the same time. It will never be debated how Ian overwhelmed, at least in the initial days, every individual, and of course the local, state, and federal governments. Everyone is simply and completely overwhelmed by the scale and scope of the disaster. But the army of caring is coming. Volunteers are headed there from all over the country who want to make a difference. Each one of them is a separate light of help and hope. Church groups, nonprofits, entire communities, those representing states, and so many others will come to the hurricane-stricken areas. This will be an amazingly positive aspect of this terrible disaster. What you will see and learn about the selfless spirits of, spirit of others and their dogged desire to lend a helping hand will inspire and buoy you. You will watch neighbors who lost everything turn that help away, uh, the, turn the help of others away 
while giving them directions to neighbors that they believe have bigger needs. There will be touching and powerful lessons all around you demonstrating the, the incredible resilience of the human spirit. You will see your neighbors and volunteers set sleepless, selfless, inspiring, and serving paces. And you will further be inspired by the fact that people will come from all walks of life. You will see firsthand that this storm, what this storm did, in fact, wash away the confusing, divisive, and defining characteristics of a social, economic, and political boundaries that existed before the storm, leaving you with an essence of the human spirit and an unbelievably inspiring lesson about who we are and what we are to each other. And you will learn deep in your, inside yourself, as we did after Hurricane Katrina, that we, excuse me, that when the going gets tough, the world gets small. We need each other. We are all human. And, and, and the letter goes on from there. When I wrote that, it's a powerful, it's a powerful statement about what we, what we needed. <laughs> it's a powerful statement about we could not have recovered without help. That help comes on a local level, a you know, state level, a federal level from the government point of view. You've got local leaders that have to be involved in some kind of organized effort. And then you've got volunteers that are coming from all over the country. That's what we experienced. And that's what they're going to experience in, in Florida as well. Uh, so let me invite my friend Ashley Edwards, CEO of the Business Council. And first, just say good morning. How you doing, Ashley? Hey, good morning, Ricky. I'm doing well, and thanks for having me. You know what's going to make, and we're going to get into your role after Katrina so people can get reminded of that, but, you know, one of the things that is going to be interesting to watch is that the Hurricane Ian scenario plays out in the day of social media and the day of a potential, you know, presidential candidate you know, a divided world. It's going to be hard, but this is what needs to happen. The politics really does need to take a backseat, doesn't it? Well, disasters have a way of bringing pragmatism to the forefront and sort of putting politics to the back burner. And that's a good thing uh, because, you know, when you're dealing with a human catastrophe, the size of what happened with Hurricane Ian, certainly very similar to what happened in Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina, uh, politics just doesn't have much of a place at the table um, because you're looking for leadership, you're looking for solutions, you're looking for speed. I mean, all of those things really don't necessarily mesh with 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 politics and ideology. Um, and you know, the ideology of disaster really has to be: in order for your community to recover, you have to have every member of your community recovered. Uh, and so it becomes a a long and very arduous process of trying to figure out who's fallen through the cracks uh, and bring them up into a state of recovery as well. And, uh, you know, it's it's a hopeful time. It's a time of great opportunity. But that's very, very difficult to see when you're on the front lines of it. Ashley, we'll get into a minute ago, excuse me, in a minute. Some of the decisions that Haley Barber made in the days and weeks after Katrina, particularly around the governor's commission, <clears throat> that were incredibly important. And they were symbolic to this point that politics has to take a back seat. And um, we'll talk specifically about those things here shortly. Okay, so let's come back to, you know, you're a young guy. There were a lot of young people involved in that recovery effort. Who's, who, and I had actually had a series of Coast View shows, actually, that talked about this long list of young people that were involved in a recovery effort that have gone on to do amazing things in their lives. <clears throat> but you were one of them. Talk about what your role was during that time. 
Well, you know, Ricky, I was 25 years old when Hurricane Katrina hit and, um, you know, had, uh, you know, I thought I knew probably knew a lot more than I actually did in those days. But I was very fortunate to, to come on staff with Governor Barber after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, as you well remember, we had the uh, Commission on Recovery, Rebuilding and Renewal, which was the largest planning effort after any disaster really in the history of the world. And, and part of that planning effort in, involved uh, creating an office within the governor's office to, to lead the, the recovery strategy and to lead all of the efforts that would be required to, you know, knit all these various funding streams and resources together to create programs that had never been created before. And so, you know, at 25 years old, I, ca I came into the Office of Recovery um, really as a, as a field staffer, a policy analyst, and, and my job was to work directly with local communities that were impacted. And, you know, it wasn't long before I became the Deputy Director of the Office of Recovery and then later the Director of the Office of Recovery. And I ended up working, uh, you know, through the end of Governor Bryant's term into the next governor's term uh, and spent about 10 years total dealing with the disaster from the time it hit uh, really through the closeout of a lot of the programs. And, you know, of course, here we are 17 years later, and there are still Katrina programs and projects going on out there. So even 17 years later, the job is not yet done. But I got to really experience an incredible cross-section, Ricky, of the challenges that, that were going to be faced after Hurricane Katrina. And it required us to do things that had never been done before. Um, and it required a leader like Haley Barber, who had the, the ability and the capability of doing things that had never been done before. It was a, it was one of the greatest leadership undertakings really in the history of the United States. So we'll come back to the governor's commission because I think there were some important moves that were made initially and it, and it, it sort of played out this way. Um, and a lot of this is detailed in Haley's book, America's great storm. But on the Tuesday after the storm, storm hits on a Monday on Tuesday, the governor and I talked by phone. I used a satellite phone to, to have that conversation and offered to put together a meeting. After he and I talked about recovery and all of this, that we would uh, help him put together a meeting that would be at three o'clock the following Sunday. And we literally sent the Pony Express out to find people. We, we, we brought the president of Mississippi Power, you know, leader at Hancock Bank, Whitney. We, we brought uh, the mayors, the mayors that we could get in touch with, they came. Um, we had a wide cross-section of leaders that came to that meeting, and we talked about the need to form some sort of commission. Now, the political part of this was, I think, really incredible. And the, first of all, from a coastal Mississippi point of view, we knew that there was no one in that room could lead this effort because if someone from Gulfport led it, then they would think that you know the people from Biloxi would think that they were getting some unfair treatment, et cetera. And uh, so who was going to lead it was going to be really important. And we'll talk about symbolically why who he discovered, who he decided to have lead it was unbelievably important. When we come back, we'll talk about that. Live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Supertalk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coast View. Uh, Ashley Edwards and I are having a conversation about what we experienced after Hurricane Katrina and sort of speculating what might be happening in, um, in Florida as we speak. And it's, I think it's going to be a good education for some folks that were not here during the, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Or maybe you were young and didn't really appreciate the kind of work that took place. Um, so in this meeting that I was talking about, we had with Haley Barber, uh, we said that we need a we need a leader, and that person can't be from coastal Mississippi. We we it needed to be someone who didn't have a direct connection to any one city. He went back after that meeting and had a brainstorm to ask Jim Barksdale, uh, Jim Barksdale from Netscape and Federal Express, Express fame, very wealthy Mississippian, a great executive. Uh, you know, you know, white papers have been written about Jim Barksdale, wonderful entrepreneur. Uh, but he was a Democrat. He was the largest contributor to Governor Ronnie Musgrove, and uh, and we accepted him with with open arms. He he invited Governor Winter, a Democrat, to be on a steering committee, and Governor uh, excuse me, Ambassador Palmer. The, he asked he asked uh, Derek Johnson, who was the president of NAACP from Mississippi, to be on the executive committee. Immediately, he sent the message that we're not going to let this be about politics. We're going to bring in a diverse group of people, and we're going to focus on one thing, helping Mississippi get back on its feet again. Those were incredibly important decisions, weren't they, Ashley? They were incredibly important, Ricky. And, you know, you you think about a post-disaster environment. You know, it is going to exacerbate every political and social division you have but it also provides the opportunity to overcome those in a way that doesn't exist in the normal course of life. And so the brilliance, I think, of what Governor Barber did, really understanding that there would have to be a shared vision, uh, understanding that there would have to be buy-in from a diverse set of stakeholders in the community, was he brought people uh, who had not traditionally been his allies, at least on the Republican side of the aisle, and he made and he, he let them know in no uncertain terms we're all going to have to agree on a vision and on a path here because we because this can't happen with without every one of us being uh, fully behind the effort and having ownership in the outcomes and he was successful in doing that i mean you know so few people really i think know the full story of of Haley Barber's leadership after Katrina but it truly is one of the great leadership stories in american history because what he was able to do in a very poor state that had been absolutely devastated. And of course, we on the coast know exactly how bad the coast was impacted. But remember, you know, Katrina carried hurricane force winds 200 miles inland into our state. Um, In the 24 hours immediately after landfall, almost all of the state's population was without power, many without running water. And so it was a statewide impact, a statewide disaster. He also had to do all of this in an environment where New Orleans was getting the headlines uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, folks were focused on the huge humanitarian crisis that existed in New Orleans, the search and rescue that was going on. Um, And so he had to be able to put Mississippi on the forefront and really put Mississippi in a position to be successful in recovery, understanding that the eyes of the world were not focused on Mississippi. Uh, and it's, I think it's an incredible story. It's been widely recognized, as you well know, uh, you know, OMB, actually the Office of Management and Budget actually called the Mississippi Katrina model a best practice for disaster recovery. 
and it's one of the proud the things I'm most proud of in my life and in my career. But without the leadership of a man like Haley Barber, we we would have never done it. And you see that there have been many disasters before Katrina and many since. And some of the things we did in Mississippi have never been duplicated in the time since then. Seventeen years at this point. What's what's interesting in the book America's Great Storm details this. But of course, I was on the ground. You know, I was on the ground. I was the vice chairman of the of the tourism uh, the tourism planning and recovery effort for the governor's commission. So I, I knew, of course, I was published with the newspaper, so I was very involved in all these these aspects. We offered up our conference room for uh, commission meetings to happen at our at our place. There wasn't really a, a place to meet because so many of those places were destroyed. So one of the few uh, places near the near the beach that actually had had available conference space. But what I was able to see is the enormous amount of effort. I think at one point we had as many as a thousand people involved in all of these various committees, infrastructure committee and tourism and all these other. They even had a forestry committee because, as you know, once you got north of coastal Mississippi, the impact on the forestry uh, segment industry was unbelievable. So you had all this going on, but what was happening simultaneously is that Governor Barber was was spending all this time in Washington. You know, he was he would spend time on the coast, and then he would he would go to Washington, and he was working very hard to begin to align leadership around a plan is coming. Now you may remember we, we've we've had this conversation before, but almost immediately uh, uh, Louisiana asked for two hundred fifty billion dollars. They didn't have a plan, but they they put that forward. Now, believe me, they were hurting, and and they probably believed that was the best thing what they were doing. But it created a chilling effect in Congress. And so what Haley did is he got informed by all these committee activities that were happening. You know, if you think about three coast counties, and then of course there are three coastal counties, and then you have other counties above that, all of them having needs. Um, I don't know how many ultimate uh, uh, municipalities, but 15 of them were tremendously impacted. The ability to develop one infrastructure plan that encompassed all of those cities so that they weren't each individually trying to decide what their own recovery plan should be. In a way, the the, the mayors sort of took a back seat, at least in the initial days, to the governor, which was really important. It gave the governor a chance to really bring everybody together and say, we got to do this together. If we don't do this together, we're going to sink together. And that was uh, that was hugely important. But the work that was happening on the on, on the ground informed what the ask was going to be in Washington, and it was incredibly orchestrated, wasn't it? Well, you had to build your plan. I mean, you know, we we understood that we weren't going to be able to just go to the federal government, you know, in a poor state like Mississippi, where we knew we would never have the internal resources to recover. We weren't going to be able to go to the federal government and just say we need help. We had to be able to define the fact that we understood what the needs were going to be, we had gone through a deliberative process to identify those uh, and to really be innovative about it. I mean, to, to your point, you know, Haley Barber was not afraid to bring in some of the best expertise in the world. We had architects and engineers and community planners from all over the world that came into coastal Mississippi, and he was glad to have that assistance. I mean, he, he essentially created an ethos around our recovery, which said, we want the best thinkers, the best visionaries in the world uh, to come and be a part of what we're doing and help and help us to, to you know, develop a plan uh, for how we ultimately build back not just what we lost, but better than what we lost. Um, and so it, it was a huge team effort. 
But it was so important to have that figurehead in, in Governor Barber. You know, it, he had to be the general. There had to be someone where the buck stopped. And ultimately, that was Haley Barber. You know, while he created an incredibly inclusive process to create the plan, he also knew that one person had to be responsible and ultimately be able to hold everybody accountable for getting things done. Yeah, because a lot of new ideas came forward. Uh, some people were, were ready to hear those new ideas and some people weren't. It created enormous public debates. And, you know, if you just let those debates just run on, you know, um, you, you needed a leader that, that said, okay, you know, we've had enough of that debate. It's time to move on. You know, the North, the, the, the East-West Corridor conversation that came up, I think was a really important conversation, but we didn't have the capacity to really do it. I mean, it's just too big an idea, and, and I think people mostly got it, and we moved on from that. I think the debates that happened around the bridge were incredibly important because what ended up happening, we built these incredible bridges to on the Bay St. Louis side and Ocean Springs side, and, uh, you know, what we got were bridges that we really are proud of. But what we mostly got were bridges that were bigger and better and taller and more resilient. And this, this, as I said in my piece that I wrote, those were monuments to our recovery. Just they were symbols of our recovery. But if you look at the infrastructure that was built all along the coast, from, 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 from cellular towers to how, how the power company recovered and what's going in the ground, even as we speak in places like Biloxi, where entire sewage and water systems are being rebuilt. Um, you know, these things are important. It's going to make us more resilient in the future. But they, the debates raged. And if you didn't have you know, someone in the middle of all that, in the case, this case, Haley Barber, to mediate those discussions, it could have melted down fast, couldn't it? Well, it could have. And I think the amazing thing, 17 years later, looking back, it, it, we remember sometimes the vitriol in some of those debates. But I think people today would would almost uniformly agree the direction was the right direction because they now have the, the benefit of seeing the outcomes. And that's the difficult part of a post-disaster recovery situation of the scale that we had here. Everybody's got different visions of what they think needs to happen, and people don't know what they don't know in many cases. And, you know, so, and sometimes it's easy to waste a lot of time and energy, you know, deba I mean, debates are good, but they can also devolve into things that just aren't productive. And so, you know, having some having a leader that can lay out that vision and say, you know, we're committed to getting there and, you know. Um, and, and it's it's difficult because there's there are there are inevitably going to be a lot of people who are very short sighted and there are going to be people with misaligned incentives. I mean, some people don't want to see good work done because they're not going to be the one hired to do the work. And, you know, those are all problems that have to be overcome. But again, the, the purpose of that central leadership you know, is being able to kind of keep a, a pragmatic tone that says uh, we have no choice but to get this right. We can't afford not to. We could not afford not to. That is for sure. When we come back, we're going to talk about how the leadership and planning immediately following the storm sort of leads to a shared vision. And then you got to figure out what are the granting mechanisms that can help us pay for that. And a lot of innovation happened at that point. We'll come back after this break. for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
I'm visiting with my friend Ashley Edwards, the CEO of the Business Council, who worked very, very closely with Governor Haley Barber after Hurricane Katrina. And we're sort of talking through what we went through after Katrina to, to get us to where we are today and speculating about what might be happening that we don't know about behind the scenes as we speak in Florida. And, uh, and it's a good opportunity for people who didn't know the story of uh, our post-Katrina efforts. You know, it's a good chance to, to see that and, and be on, you know, understand what it took. But this notion of a shared vision, having leadership uh, mostly aligned around these things, um, helped inform the planning efforts, helped help inform uh, the congressional efforts in Washington, uh, getting both local, state, and national leaders on the same page was really important because it ultimately led to an ask in the billions of dollars and a lot of success as it related to that. And then it also then, then what folded out of that were very specific granting mechanisms, some of them traditional, very, very traditional federal granting mechanisms, and then some of them really never before done before. And it had to be adjusted based on the situation. And the situation in Mississippi with the highest storm surge ever measured in, in the United States history and the impact that had on people far outside what was the traditional flood maps, we were going to be in serious trouble if we didn't find a, a way for those people to rebuild. So that was a that was a really, really important part of this whole discussion, wasn't it, Ashley? It, it was incredibly important. And you start to think about in the early days after co- recovery, the sequence of recovery that's going to occur. You know, all disasters are different. And the interesting thing about Hurricane Ian in Florida is it's such a close analog for what happened in coastal Mississippi in that you have towns that are wiped out. And what I mean by that really is you have to start from scratch. You know, you've got infrastructure, basic infrastructure that's been scoured out by the storm surge. Before you can rebuild housing, you've got to replace water lines and sewer lines and roads to get to these areas where neighborhoods used to be. And you have to get power restored and you have to get utilities restored. And you know, despite the fact that there are tremendous resources that are coming from the federal government, um, those are coming in existing programs. They can often be very bureaucratic and very prescriptive. And so the, the job really in the Office of Recovery was, was sort of being a master knitter. It was, it was learning how to knit together these various funding streams to create holistic recovery outcomes and understanding that sequence. Because, you know, we knew that there was going to be an order in which we had to deploy these resources and deploy this money. And some of the first things we did were, you know, getting the, the infrastructure put back into place to support life and communities. You know, I oftentimes talk about the fact that we had every public school in Mississippi reopened before the very first public school in New Orleans reopened. New Orleans reopened. And you think about that. Every public school in South Mississippi reopened before the very first one in New Orleans. And that was because we understood that the school districts and the public schools were going to be the primary thing that would allow people to come back into their communities and, and, and begin the rebuilding process, having a place to, to know that their kids were safe and secure during the daytimes while the parents had to go out and rebuild their lives and their shattered businesses and all the things that came along with it. Um, we immediately went to work trying to determine how we were going co- un- uh, to compensate uncompensated or uninsured losses from the storm. Because, you know, and, and here, I think this is so critical, Ricky. There are people in Florida right now 
that have not yet learned that they don't have federal flood insurance coverage. You know, they know they have home insurance, but let's be honest, how often do you really get into depth about your insurance until a disaster hits? And so, you know, they're going to be filing claims with their homeowners policies to find out later that there's an exclusion to flood coverage. And a lot of these people lived outside of federally designated flood zones. They weren't required by their lender to have coverage. And if we had just simply said, you know, too bad, you know, that, that's, that's terrible for them, but too bad, there's nothing we can do about it. There's no way our communities would have ever come back. And so we had to figure out ways to, to employ federal resources that had never been used to do things like compensate homeowners for uncompensated losses, because we knew that without it, there was no way these communities were going to rebuild. And so you think of the billions of dollars in first of their kind programs that we had to put together sort of knitting together this tapestry of what a holistic recovery would look like. And they're going to be going through the same thing in Florida because, you know, FEMA, the Stafford Act, they're great and they're fast. But ultimately, they're only going to pay to fix things back to the way they were the day before the storm hit. And that is seldomly ever going to be the final goal in a recovery process. You're going to want to not only get back to where you were the day before the disaster, but to make sure you're much more resilient and prepared for the next one. So we were able to do that effectively in Mississippi. And, and, and frankly, I think that our model was, was probably the best practice model that we've ever seen in a post, uh, post-hurricane recovery in the United States. Well, actually, you and I have talked about this before, but I think it's worth noting again, you know, the governor wanted the name of the commission to be Recovery, Rebuilding, and Renewal, and we tried to shorten the name. He didn't want anything to do with that. He wanted, he said, because you got to be able to do all three. So let's yep. just think about Ian, Ian right now. And, the, you know, some people still have water in their homes. And, right. and people are only, for right now, all they're really focused on is where is my next meal coming from? Where is my, where is my water coming from? Where am I going to sleep tonight? And as more people begin to find sort of what their temporary situation is going to be, then they can kind of find their way. But what, the, what Haley Barber understood was that that was going to go on. That was going to go on in the early days. But what better also be going on is an enti- entire conversation around what does rebuilding look like? You know, how, how do we get alignment around rebuilding? And we'll never renew. Renew meant building back bigger and better. It meant being more resilient. It meant, you know, using creativity around certain programs. It meant all kinds of different things. But th- these three components were going to play out simultaneously. And you made a, me- a point the last time we talked, which I think was really powerful. And that is, if you don't get that right, then you're going to be dealing with a disaster in the future that causes Ian to pale in comparison because people are not going to come back. Businesses are not going to come back. And it's going to be a whole different situation. Well, people have to have the resources to recover. And, you know, but you're exactly right. You're in response phase right now in Florida. I mean, you think about the Fort Myers region, the Sanibel region, you know, they're unfortunately, they're still pulling dead bodies out of out of wreckage. I mean, you know, they are very much in response phase. And basic human needs come to the forefront. You know, how do you get them sheltered? How do you get them fed? How do you make sure they've got clean water to drink? I mean, all of those things are at the forefront. But as you noted, and it's, it's, it is so critical, you have to have a parallel path of a long-term recovery vision because the response is going to be time limited. There, there will be a day in the near future, al- although it's difficult if you're right in the middle of it to see it, but there will be a day in the near future when the response ends. And then you've got to lay the foundation for long-term recovery, but you can't wait until that point because there are decisions being made right now 
that's going to affect how these communities are going to look five and ten years from now. And so you've got to have that that sort of that roadmap for where you're ultimately going to go, even in the response phase. And I think that that, again, is sort of the brilliance of the way that Haley Barber uh, conducted this disaster recovery in Mississippi, because he recognized that that parallel track for a long-term recovery vision while we were responding. And, you know, I, I remember telling some of the staff in Chris Christie's office after Hurricane Sandy when I was kind of on loan, just just giving them some pointers and, you know, here's what's coming for you guys. And I said, look, no, nobody is going to want to talk right now about long-term recovery. And they'll get mad if you try to talk about it because they're saying, wait a second, we've got 20-foot high piles of debris all over our roads. We've got people that are unaccounted for. And you want to talk about the way that our community is going to look 10 years from now? And the answer is absolutely. Because the other thing is you've got to be inspiring to the people in your community. They've got to know that you're committed to making sure that they can uh, that they can have the initial recovery, but that you're also going to be there for the long-term recovery and that you have a plan. And yeah. so having a plan, having a vision becomes just a critical path item uh, in, in an event like what they're going through. A lot of things come to mind. Um, you said it a minute ago by, about the reality is Haley Barber said three things have to happen. You mentioned the schools. People have to have their jobs back, and then they have to have a place to live. And so all those things had to play out simultaneously within the context of where people can get their next meal from and where's their water going to come from. You know, the other thing that that happened here, too, and it occurred, someone said to me early in the process, he said, you know, Ricky, one of the most important things you're going to have as the chairman of the tourism area as we work to try to get the land-based you know, gaming law changed Make the you know, to get it enacted so that casinos can rebuild because that was hugely important to our recovery after the, the casinos rebuilt. As he said, something like this: He said, "You know, you need to, as you guys begin to put this plan together, you need to have a cohesive." you know, cohesive talking points about what the future is going to be. Because if you look around now, that doesn't look like there's going to be much of a future. Your job is to do one thing, and that is manage FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that casino companies and others are going to be going through to decide whether they should rebuild or not. And that was a great point. And, and was, in order to, ha- to manage the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, people have to have a job, their kids have to have a school to go to, and they have to have a home. And that's why all of these different characteristics of the recovery effort have to play out simultaneously. When we come back, we're going to talk about if you have unmet needs, they're going to start to compound over time and create major problems. So it'll be interesting to see how Florida deals with that. We'll see you after this break. Live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say Alexa. Open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. Ashley Edwards, the CEO of the Coast Business Council, with us, and he um, spends a tremendous amount of his career in the days after Hurricane Katrina, working with the recovery office and uh, eventually led that office. One of the things that that I've noticed, and um, it will be interesting to see how this plays out, and that is this, that, you know, in 2004, you had a bunch of hurricanes that came through 
uh, came through the state of Florida. And in fact, uh, Jeb Bush gave Haley Barber much good advice about that. Um, then, of course, you had Wilma in 2005, you know, right after Hurricane Katrina. And then you've had storms since then. None of those storms, frankly, n- not even not even the storm, what, the storm back, uh, Andrew, none of those storms. In Andrew's case, it went to an area that tremendous damage, but it was far south of, of Miami. In this particular case, it hit a, a highly dense area. It's a storm like they've not seen before. It will be a record storm for the state of Florida for sure. And some people who had experience with those other storms may think they're going to be able to get their arms immediately around this just based on their prior experience. And um, and they may be underestimating the scope and scale and how quickly unmet needs are going to compound. And I hope that they're considering that, Ashley. I don't know what I don't know, but I'm just I'm just saying out loud that over time there are going to be serious challenges because this is an area that was hit that's around 1.5 million people. That is, that's tremendous. And to get those people, to, you know, the, the temporary housing that they need and all the needs that they're going to have in the short term and the long term until the community rebuilds is a gargantuan effort, isn't it? Well, the volume of the recovery that's got to occur, it just necessitates speed. I mean, you think about temporary housing that's got to go in there, especially coming you know, out of the, the pandemic and supply chain crunches. It's going to be difficult just to get the sheer number of units in there uh, that they're going to need to temporarily house people. And, you know, the, the the guys that are out there in that industry are saying, hey, we need to know quickly what the needs are going to be because we've got to start to ramp up to be able to produce these things. And we've got to order microwaves and ovens and washers and dryers that are that are tough to get uh, in the current economic environment, given the supply chain uh, you know disruptions. So, you know, it's, it, it becomes such a, uh, a situation of having to build a bridge to get across a chasm uh, while you're also walking across it. Uh, you know, it, it's, you're, you're kind of building an airplane as you're flying it. And, it, and it's, it's a very, very difficult time. Um, but on the same note, you know, you, there's no choice but to do it. I mean, you have to get it right. It's, it's something that you and I have said many times before. There's just no room for error or room for waiting or taking too much time. Um, Florida certainly has had a lot of experience with disasters historically, but you're absolutely on point. There's, they've not experienced anything like this. Um, and, you know, let's not forget, you think about the coastal communities that were devastated by this, but the amount of rain and flooding that went well inland, even into like, like the Orlando metro area, not to mention the fact that we then had the storm get back over the Atlantic and then go into the Carolinas. And, you know, it's, it's still dumping rain all the way up to Boston right now. So there's going to be multiple states that will ultimately be declared in this disaster. Um, and there's going to be a competition for resources. There's going to be a competition for things like temporary housing, uh, a competition for expertise. And so, you know, Florida has got to move very quickly here and start laying the groundwork for a sustainable process uh, because a month from now, you, there will have been so much time lost, they'll be behind the curve. Hey, listen, I have a brother-in-law who lives in Tampa. Um, he has a business in Orlando. And as of today, his business in Orlando, he has powered his house in Tampa, but his business in Orlando has no power. Right. Even today. 
So you're right. I mean, it's not. We think we tend to think of the what we see on TV. You know, the Sanibel Island and you know uh, Fort Myers Beach, and we we tend to see the the storm in those and with that frame. But but further inland, you have all the flooding that's taking place, and then across the state, you have challenges that are taking place. So it's going to have to be unparalleled leadership like we've never seen before. And aside from the you know completely aside from the political dimension that's going to play out here. This is a defining moment for Ron DeSantis, just like it was the defining moment for Haley Barber. And it took leadership like we'd never seen before. And in his case, it's going to take leadership like Florida's never seen before. If they're going to get this right, that is for sure. Last word as we get ready to wind this down to Ashley. Well, I think, you know, I think you're so right on to, to, to really focus on and point out the importance of leadership because it, it does take leadership. And, you know, I think the great news about this is there are going to be local leaders, community leaders who will emerge from this uh, who may not have ever even held a leadership role before, but they will 20 years from now, they'll still be the ones taking their communities forward. And disasters have a way of bringing out the very best in people. Uh, And I think you're already starting to see that happen in Florida. And, you know, I think certainly for all of your listeners, if there's anything that we can do here, to be helpful, to volunteer time, to volunteer assets to the to the cause there. Uh, there's no question the people are going to need it. We've been there before, and we know what they're going through, and, and we would not wish that on anybody. So anything we can do to help uh, when times are good here, we should be doing. I agree, Ashley, and I ended my column. This I just said this. You can and will do this. My hope for you, that's the people who were hit by Ian is that uh, God will bless you with the energy, the patience, the determination, and compassion to persevere. We certainly learned that after Hurricane Katrina. Hey, listen, it's been a terrific opportunity to talk. I just wanted to talk it through, and I appreciate your willingness to join me to have this conversation. I appreciate you, my friend. Hey, Ricky, thank you for the opportunity, and this is such an important topic. Thank you for all you've done. You bet. This has been Ashley Edwards from the Coach Business Council. Have a great day, and we will see you tomorrow. Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.